Good morning, everyone, and happy Sunday to you. Before we get very far in, though, I wanted to take this opportunity to tell you all exactly what happened last week with my husband, David, and give you an update on his condition. So as many of you know by now, David collapsed at home last Saturday morning around 10.30 a.m. Uh, just before that, he'd come out of the bathroom after showering, and he was complaining that he thought he pulled a muscle in his back because it really hurt, and he asked me if I could rub the spot for him. So I sat on the edge of our bed, and he sat between my knees, and as I was rubbing the place on his back that hurt, he suddenly made the comment that he had an upset stomach and didn't feel very well. And as soon as the words were out of his mouth, he uh, just kind of slumped against me and began to slide off the edge of the bed. So I grabbed him under the armpits and heaved us both backward onto the bed, which kept him from sliding onto the floor. And now he was dead weight right on top of me with his back to my front. So I couldn't get any response from him, so I heaved him sideways to get out from under him, and he came around just as I was struggling to pull myself loose. I told him to stay still, but of course, being a man, he did not listen. He tried to get up, and I jumped up to grab him and managed to get him to sit down at the end of the bed before he fell. And he told me not to, but I called 911 anyway, and the squad came, and they checked him out. And by that time, David seemed a little better and was alert sort of. <laughs> so they recommended he go to the hospital and offered to let me drive him. But I said, no, you didn't see what just happened here a few minutes ago. That was not normal. You guys just pack him up and take him to Hillcrest. So um, he went to Hillcrest in the ambulance and he was saying he didn't want to go, but I insisted. And so he went. And it turns out by the time he got to the hospital, the front of his chest was starting to hurt too. And a blood a quick blood draw by the doctor showed that he had the markers for a blood clot. So they did a CT scan and found a small pulmonary embolism in his left lung. And immediately they put him on blood thinners and did some other scans and tests of his legs and his heart to see if they could determine where the clot had originated and they didn't find anything. And by Sunday evening, they allowed him to come home. So I went to pick him up. Um, he'll be on blood thinners for an indefinite period of time. And this week, he followed up with our primary care physician who thinks that the kind of clot that he had in his lung is very common for people who suffer from the type of sleep apnea, which he was diagnosed with a few years ago. Um, the type of sleep apnea he has causes his breathing to stop, not frequently, but for long periods of time. And this puts stress on the heart and can cause it to flutter and blood to pool and foam in the heart chambers. And this foamy blood can form the basis of a clot that then gets pushed out into the lungs once the breathing and heart rhythm resume normally again. So David will go see a cardiologist in a couple of weeks to confirm this. However, praise the Lord, he seems fine now, except he's low on energy and a little tired and he has to take the blood thinners. So I feel like this is a good opportunity for me to offer a public service announcement. If you suspect you may have sleep apnea, get it checked out. If you always snore or your spouse tells you that you seem to stop breathing for a few seconds at a time when you're asleep, these can be symptoms. If you frequently feel really tired in the morning despite thinking you should have had a long enough sleep, this can be a symptom of sleep apnea. Waking up often during the night for no discernible reason can also be a symptom of sleep apnea. I have sleep apnea also, by the way, <laughs> the same type that David does. 
And I was diagnosed many years ago now, but I have probably had it my whole life. Both of us wear CPAP masks to bed, and each of us has a machine, so you can imagine how lovely that looks. <laughs> Very romantic. Um, and I know that wearing the mask can be hard to get used to, and it's a pain to have to clean and pack up and take the machine everywhere we stay overnight, but now I also see how important it is to wear it faithfully. Sleep apnea is not a joke. It can kill you. And David could really have been in hot water if I hadn't forced him to go to the hospital after he passed out. So I will be much more faithful in my use of my machine in the future, and I think he will be too. In the past, you know, we sometimes fell asleep and forgot to put the mask on, and that's probably what happened to David. There is no sense losing your life over something that can be treated and prevented, especially when there's so much else out there that can get us that we do not have any control over. So this ends my public service announcement portion of the broadcast. <laughs> but thank you folks, really, for all your prayers and your kind inquiries and the cards that both David and I received during that very, very scary episode last weekend for our family. I appreciate all of you so much, and it really helps during bad times when we feel the love of others um, helping to hold us up when we have trouble standing. Love gives us hope, which is the very thing we're going to talk about today as we continue our series called Hope, Living with Confident Expectation. Our Light of Christ reading this morning is uh, a combination of verses. It's going to be 2 Corinthians um, chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, and Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 4. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. We even take pride in our problems because we know that trouble produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. For our opening prayer related to these words of hope from the Apostle Paul, I want to share with you an old prayer I found from an unknown Confederate soldier. I believe it focuses us perfectly on how we develop the endurance to go on in times of heartache and despair. Who may have known this any better than a soldier during the pain and upheaval of the Civil War era? Dear Lord, I ask for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I ask for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I ask for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for God. I asked for all these things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I had asked for, but everything that I had hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all men most richly blessed. Amen. I hope that all of you moms and other motherly caregivers had an enjoyable Mother's Day last Sunday. My message for this week would have been the one for last week had I not had all that medical excitement instead. 
But even so, I want to make sure that I give a shout out to all the moms in our world who do so much to make us, uh, to form us, help, help form us into the people we've become and who spend so much of their time loving us and giving us hope. If you remember, our definition of hope for the last several weeks has been that hope is the conviction that the future will, in some meaningful way, be better than the present. I can remember many times in my life when my mother helped me, helped give me that hope for the future when my current life was anything but. She counseled me when I failed at something I tried, when friends turned their backs and when youthful relationships didn't work out. She was my cheerleader when I thought I wasn't good enough or when others doubted me. She always pushed me to try new things and to do my best, even when those things seemed frightening and out of reach. Mom cried with me when my first marriage fell apart, and she was there for me when I suffered several miscarriages. She has suffered with me through illness and was at my side for weeks after I was struck by an SUV. I'm sure most of you can say similar things about the special woman or women who have cared for you throughout your lives. Take a minute now and say a prayer for them, even if they're no longer with us. I believe that even if they are already with Jesus, they will know and they will smile at your remembrance. Our scripture lesson this morning is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. May God bless the reading of this word. Our message this morning is titled Adversity and Opportunity, Finding Hope in the Epistles. So we continue this morning our series on hope inspired by the Reverend Adam Hamilton, who's pastor of the Church of the Resurrection, United Methodist Church in Kansas City. In this series, we've already looked at hope in the Psalms, in the prophets, and in the Gospels. And today we're going to take a look at hope in the epistles of the Apostle Paul. Epistle is a funny word, especially if you put it right next to the word apostle, as in Paul, the apostles, epistles. This makes me chuckle, and I could say it all day long, but the word epistle simply means letter, as these were messages of encouragement and teaching that Paul sent to the many churches he had founded throughout his missionary journeys. There are other apostles who wrote epistles, but we're going to focus this morning on the letters of Paul. Um, We're focusing on Paul today for one simple reason. He wrote a lot about hope. In fact, some scholars call him the champion of hope. The reason for this, though, is simple. If we take all of Paul's letters and combine them, the length is about equal to that of the book of Psalms. The Psalms talk about hope quite a bit. In fact, hope is mentioned explicitly about 22 times, depending on your translation. But Paul writes explicitly about hope 67 times, three times more often in his letters. So let me tell you a little bit about why Paul writes so much about hope. Paul started out life as a little boy named Saul. 
He grew up in Tarsus in southeastern Turkey during the time that Jesus was also growing up in Nazareth. Saul's parents were Jewish, but his father was also a very wealthy businessman, and his family enjoyed the rare privilege of becoming Roman citizens, which was not the norm for most Jewish people. Saul's family was very devout and sent Saul to all the best rabbinic teachers and schools, and as an adult, Saul sought to make a name for himself as a rabbi. Paul, or Saul, well, same person, Saul, um, had never met Jesus, but he had heard of his unusual teaching and ministry, and like many of the Pharisees, was disapproving of his teaching and his methods. And after Jesus was put to death, many of the Pharisees believed that with his disciples scattered and him dead, the movement that Jesus had begun would die out too. But that was not to be. Instead, only weeks after Jesus' death, the rumor had spread throughout the countryside that Jesus had been resurrected and that his disciples were continuing their ministry. Saul saw this as his opportunity not only to squelch the gospel, which many, including himself, saw as heretical, but also to raise his profile among the religious elites. So, Paul began harassing and eventually raiding and arresting groups of Christ followers wherever they were reported. And what began as persecution soon turned into violence at the preaching of one of Jesus' disciples, Stephen, who had been arrested by the Sanhedrin. Stephen was stoned to death by the crowd while Saul looked on in glee and did not intervene. Soon after, carrying official letters from the high priest in Jerusalem, Saul set out for Damascus with instructions for the synagogues there in Damascus to turn over any followers of the way so that he might take them as prisoners back to Jerusalem for trial. But as he neared Damascus, Saul was suddenly surrounded by a bright light, like lightning that flashed around him, and he was struck to the ground. And a voice said to him, Why do you persecute me? This voice was the voice of Jesus, and he told Saul to get up and go to the city where he would be told what he had to do. Well, all the men who were traveling with Saul had heard the sound, but had seen nothing. When Paul got up from the ground and opened his eyes, he realized that he was blind. So the men led Paul to Damascus by the hand, where for three days he ate and drank absolutely nothing. Meanwhile, in Damascus, a disciple named Ananias had a vision in which the Lord told him to go to the house where Saul was staying and ask him, and asked to see him. Ananias didn't want to go, for he knew who Saul was by reputation and why he had come to Damascus, but the Lord told him that Saul was going to be his instrument to proclaim his name to the Gentiles. And so Ananias went to the house and found Saul there, still blind. And Ananias put his hands on Saul and told him why he was there that Jesus had showed him what had happened on the road and that Jesus had sent him to heal his sight so that he might be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that is exactly what happened. Soon after, Saul became known as Paul. And so that's uh, how that happened. So let's pause here for a minute in our discussion of how Paul became the champion of hope to remind you about something we talked about in the earlier weeks of the series. That is the three stages of life as described by Walter Brueggemann. And they are orientation, when all is well, disorientation, when things have begun to go wrong, 
and reorientation when all things are set right and equilibrium is restored and things are moving back toward an even keel once again. So we have also learned that the season of disorientation is not only where hope mostly lives, but where it is essential to have in order to allow people to reorient themselves to better days ahead. When this first event happens to Paul on the Damascus Road, he is suddenly thrust into a season of disorientation, for sure. Everything he believed and was certain of in his life was suddenly stood on its head. It was as if the rug he had been standing on had suddenly been yanked out from under him and he was left lying blind in a helpless puddle on the ground. For those three days before Ananias found him, Paul's whole life as he knew it was gone, destroyed in a moment. But when Ananias came and prayed with him, his eyes were healed by Jesus and by the Holy, and the Holy Spirit entered his heart, bringing hope for a new future, better than his present. He was given a new path, a new path to tread and a new life to live. He had been converted. So you see, it is in these times of disorientation and confusion that we most often find ourselves in times of transformation. Our past cannot ever be recovered, and we can only move on and move forward to a new way of living and being. And this is exactly what happened to Paul. He was converted from a man who persecuted followers of Jesus to one who was now an ardent follower himself. This transformation not only changed his trajectory, but gave him hope for the future. But this wasn't the only time in his life when Paul faced this season of disorientation. He went through it over and over again, just as we do today. Let me remind you with just a sampling of the things that occurred to Paul in the book of Acts. On Paul's first uh, missionary journey, he and Barnabas were preaching in Pisidian Antioch in central Turkey and were forced to flee for their lives. They made their way to Iconium, where they preached and were winning converts, but the Jewish leaders were jealous of Paul and Barnabas and threw them out of the town. So they traveled to Lystra and there also preached the good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Now the Jews from Antioch and Iconium, who had set themselves against Paul and Barnabas, now showed up in Lystra and turned many people who they'd been preaching to against them. And the, the uh, mob stoned Paul and dragged him out to the city's edge to leave him for dead. But instead, the disciples who were with him gathered around Paul and he was able to get up and go back into the city to preach some more. Can you believe that? I don't know if I'd have the nerve to do that. But the bad times for Paul didn't end there. On Paul's second missionary journey, Paul cast a spirit out of a fortune teller who was a slave whose owner made a great deal of money by her fortune telling. And after the spirit was banished, she could no longer tell fortunes and her owners were deprived of the substantial income they had made from her. And they were pretty angry about that. So the owners dragged Paul and Silas before the authorities on trumped up charges of blasphemy. Paul and Silas were stripped and beaten with rods. Then they were thrown into a prison dungeon. At about midnight, while they were sitting in this prison dungeon, to pass the time, Paul and Silas began to pray and sing hymns of thanks to God. All of the prisoners and the jailer himself heard them. And suddenly there was an earthquake and the doors to the prison fell open and their chains fell off. 
The jailer drew his sword when he saw this and was about to kill himself, knowing that he would be in, in trouble and probably be killed by the Roman authorities if they found out that he had let people escape from the prison. But um, before he had a chance to do that, Paul called to him that no one had escaped. They were all still there. And the jailer fell on his knees and was converted, as were the rest of the jailer's family. So it's easy to see how Paul might have lost hope during these times. What kept him going against all the adversity that was thrown in his way? Well, the answer becomes clear in this narrative at the prison in Philippi. In the darkest hour of night, in the worst of circumstances, beaten and sore, hungry and chained, Paul and Silas were praying and singing songs of praise to God. During the hardest of times, Paul was praising God. Just as it did for Paul, praising God in the midst of the storm gives us hope to carry on. Singing, praying, and giving thanks are things we all can do when the chips are down. Even in the worst of times, it is important for us to remember what is good in our lives and to share that with our Lord. In 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, we read, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in every situation, because this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. Like Paul, we need to look for and hone in on what we can be thankful for in hard times. There's always something we can give thanks to God for. Looking for these blessings and thanking God for them helps us to find hope. Paul was persecuted over and over for his faith and was eventually put to death for it. Yet he never lost hope that the future would, in some meaningful way, be better than the present. <clears throat> in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 28, Paul recounts um, his own list of trials to the church in Corinth. He writes, I've been beaten more times than I can count. I faced death many times. I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews five times. I was stoned once. I was shipwrecked three times. I spent a day and a night on the open sea. I've been on many journeys. I faced many dangers from rivers, robbers, my people, and the Gentiles. I faced dangers in the city, in the desert, on the sea, and from false brothers and sisters. I face these dangers with hard work and heavy labor, many sleepless nights, hungry and thirsty, often without food, and in the cold without enough clothes. Besides all the other things I could mention, there's my daily stress because I'm concerned about all the churches. Now imagine this. I imagine few of us could, could recount such an... <laughs> such an onerous list of life's trials and tribulations. Yet Paul did all these things and lived through all these hardships. And throughout all of it, he never stopped thanking and praising God. And because he did so, Paul never lost hope. Paul had a hard life, yet he had hope in part because he gave thanks, not only when times were good, but in every circumstance he faced. However, that is not the only reason that Paul was able to hold on to hope. The other reason is the same one that we can also hold on to. It is this. Paul believed in Jesus with all his heart, and he believed that Jesus had died and risen again. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus had conquered hate 
and evil and sin and death. Christ's resurrection and his defeat of death is the confidence that Paul had, and it is the confidence that we can share. Every year, we celebrate Easter Sunday as a commemoration of that confidence in the coming of the kingdom of God. In fact, every Sunday is a mini remembrance of God in Jesus Christ conquering death. No matter what happened to him, Paul believed that everything was going to be all right in the end. God was saying to Paul and to us that you do not have to be afraid of anything because I have already overcome everything. As Christians and Easter people, we believe that the worst thing is never the last thing. We can say with confidence that even if I die, I live. What in the whole wide world could be more uplifting than that? Even if I die, I live. That is so awesome to consider. It gives me chills a little bit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 to 9, Paul says the following, We are experiencing all kinds of trouble, but we aren't crushed. We are confused, but we aren't depressed. We are harassed, but we are not abandoned. We are knocked down, but we aren't knocked out. You see, Paul believed that God is bigger than all things. What we think is the end of our story is never the end of the story in God's book. This was true for Paul, and it is true for each one of us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul continues, Do not lose heart, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul is saying to us that if I die, then that great day ahead with the Lord is the adventure. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54, Paul writes in confirmation of this, When this perishable body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. There had been a death among the saints in the congregation in Thessalonica, and Paul writes to them some encouragement in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. You see, when someone we love dies, it is okay, and certainly it is right even, to grieve that loss. We're sad. Of course we are, because that person is gone from our presence. But we surely grieve differently when we believe that someone whom we love is with God. That person is now safe in God's loving arms, feeling no more anguish or sorrow or pain. And we know that one day we will join them there. That promise gives us hope. In fact, we can live differently when we have that kind of hope. I don't mean that we should live foolishly without a care in the world about what befalls us here on earth. Of course not. We have a responsibility to do our best to live righteous, upright, and fruitful lives. It's just that knowing there is hope for us beyond the finality of the grave should take away some of the dread and fear that looking toward that eventuality can bring with it. Reverend Hamilton shared the story of a police officer in Overland Park with a wife and young daughter who was killed in the line of duty on May 4th of this year. 
On his way to work, he witnessed a hit-and-run accident and followed the suspect's car while calling for backup. The driver of the car pulled over, and as the officer, Mike Mosher, approached, the driver opened fire on him. The suspect was killed in the ensuing shootout, and Officer Mosher died later at the hospital. The family, the Mosher family, are members of the Church of the Resurrection in Kansas City, and in talking with the officer's wife, Reverend Hamilton was surprised when the wife stated that she was not only saddened by the death of her husband, that she forgave the shooter and was also saddened that his family had also lost a loved one. Adam asked her how it was possible that she could care about the shooter or his family so soon after such a traumatic incident for her. And she told him that it was because she knew that her husband, who had lived a wonderful life, had been a caring and loving husband, father and friend, was safe with God. That surety not only gave her hope that she would see him again someday, but it also filled her with hope for the future because Mike would not have wanted her to spend her life grieving for him. He would want her to share her compassion with others because he was going to be okay. When my husband was still working as a police officer, I often worried about his safety in similar scenarios. And I wonder if I would have been able to hang on to that kind of hope if my family's life had been shattered in the way that Mike Mosher's was. Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans in chapter 8, verses 38 to 40, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That kind of faith bears us up in the face of adversity and allows us to live differently. Think back to our definition of hope once again. Hope is the conviction that the future in some meaningful way, will be better than the present. These verses from Romans, then, are the ultimate definition of hope. No matter what happens on this side of eternity, there is always something more on the other side. This life is only the beginning. Paul had the belief that God would take the adversity of life and force it to work for good. He refused to believe that any pain or suffering that we experience in this life will be wasted by God. He believed that somehow all of our suffering could be used for good in the world. Now hear me clearly here. God doesn't give us trials and pain in our lives just so that he can use them for good. Bad things happen in this broken world sometimes because of our choices, the choices of others, and sometimes for no discernible reason at all. A child struck down with neuroblastoma or a woman battling breast cancer weren't given their cancer by God. That, the fact that some children are born with birth defects doesn't mean that God is responsible for them. Tornadoes, floods, and other natural disasters happen because of weather patterns. God doesn't send them on us. God didn't make the gunman shoot Officer Mosher. God didn't make a truck hit me. I just was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Bad stuff just happens despite our best intentions. However, bad stuff in this world doesn't have the last word. God cannot bear to leave our suffering to fester without forcing some good to come out of it if we let him. Paul believed, and I believe too, 
that if we put our suffering in God's hands, God will take it and make something beautiful from it. As we come to our close today, I want to make sure that I give you our memory verse for the week. And I will post it on the Portage Faith United Methodist Church uh, Facebook page. It's one of my favorite scriptures of all time, and it has brought me much hope and peace in recent years. It's Romans um, chapter 8, verse 28. We know that God works all things together for good, for the ones who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Let's read that one more time because I love it so much. We know that God works all things together for good for the ones who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. This is what Paul saw in his life, that everything bad that had happened to him, given to God, would be used by God to make something beautiful from. Paul wrote the epistle to the Philippians probably while he was in prison in Rome, waiting for the ruling which would either free him or send him to his death. Yet we call this letter sometimes the epistle of joy because it is such a hopeful message to this congregation in Philippi. He believed so strongly that God was using his prison circumstances to evangelize and spread the gospel among those he would never have had the opportunity to meet otherwise. Hear Paul's words from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. Indeed, when else would he have had a chance to do this among these officials of the Roman Empire? He doesn't say, why me? Instead, Paul says, hey, Look who I have the opportunity to share the gospel with. Can you see sometimes in your life when you have given up something bad that has happened to you to God and something good or beautiful has come from it? Feel free to leave a comment on the Facebook page and I look forward to reading what you all have to share. But for now, let us pray. Dear God, you know every one of our stories and our adversaries adversities, no matter where we are. We know that you do not bring us this pain, but you have promised us that you will redeem it and use it for good. When we put our trials and tribulations into your hands, we know you will take it and force something good to come from it. Lord, we also pray that in these times, you will help us to see the opportunities that lie within our adversity. Help us to be people of hope, relentless hope that we trust in your promise of the resurrection, that the worst thing is never the last thing. Help us to trust in your unfailing love for us and learn to give thanks in all circumstances, knowing that this is your will for us. Help us, like the Apostle Paul, to be people, captives, and apostles of hope. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to leave you today with a song for the benediction, a gospel song called Precious Lord Take My Hand, and then I'll play us out with a tune arranged and recorded by Steve Weinkammer. I love to tell the story. Precious Lord, take my hand. 
Lead me on, let me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord.